Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time it is that you Inky Savages are joining us for episode number 172 of the Penboy Roy Pentertainment Podcast. So this week I have on for the fourth time in the history of the Pentertainment Podcast a guest that has been on several times. It is Mr. JJ Lax. We're excited to have him. And he is here to, I don't know what he's here to discuss, but he wanted to be on the show. And as a result, I'm just like, yeah, man, I love having you on the show. Having you on the show is awesome. So he's going to be with us after the sponsorship reads. So before we get started with this week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how much I love you guys for using the affiliate link in the description below, which gives you access to all the products on the Goldspot websites and gives you the chance to help out this multi-dozen dollar corporation known as the Pentertainment Studios. Just be sure to use coupon code LUCY, as in I love Lucy, or more importantly, the Odd Oinks Pup Lucy, L-U-C-Y. Make sure to use coupon code LUCY at checkout for an additional savings on most of the products available on the Goldspot website, of course, through the affiliate link. Some exclusions do apply because some brands are just too snobby and think they're better than they are and won't allow discounts. I'm just kidding. I do that every time because there's a little there's a little hint of spite in there. Anyway, mm. I also want to talk one more time and I and I really am going to say that this is probably the last time we're going to talk about it and the only reason why is because our good old friend Bryce over over at Luxury Brands of America he doesn't update the sponsorship reads. So whenever I ask him last minute, hey, what's the sponsorship read for this week? He has to come up with something. And since he still has about 10% of stock left of the Retro 51 Luxury Brands Exclusive Tornado, the Rainforest, he said, you know what? Might as well talk about that one again. What other pen is one of a kind like this pen? What so other good. pen has a tree frog on the finial? What other None pen other. has rainforest birds and critters all over the pen with leaves and stuff? It's a rollerball, comes in real handy. Sometimes there are situations in life where fountain pens are not the most practical or optimal writing instrument. And in that case, there is nothing better than to use the Rainforest Retro 51 Luxury Brands Exclusive Tornado. As I said, it has animals of the rainforest wrapping around the pen and a tree frog perched on the finial. This Retro 51, and I mean this, is sure to be one of a kind, much different than all the other pens that have been described as one of a kind, but no, this one is genuinely and truly one of a kind. Now, most importantly, a portion of the proceeds from the purchase of this pen will be donated to the Rainforest Trust to help protect endangered animals and landscapes around the world. As you guys know, I am a huge animal lover. I can't resist a cat in the street, and I do have a new cat now. I'll talk about that later if, if JJ Lax is open to hearing about it after the sponsorships. But this pen, the Rainforest Retro 51 Luxury Brands Exclusive Tornado, is limited to 500 individually numbered pieces worldwide, and you can purchase them directly at the link given to you in the description below. It's luxurybrandsusa.com slash product slash retro 51. That's a mouthful, so the link will be in the description below for you to easily click on it. And last, 
I want to just talk about this bad boy right here one more time because I got oh, this in the mail. Thanks, Roy. Yeah, and I just love this thing. I haven't used it yet because it's like sacred. I'm going to litter this bad boy with stickers. But this is the Ink Journal exclusive endless recorder. Now, it's not your standard dot grid recorder. It's not your standard notebook. This is designed exclusively for use for ink swashes and stuff. There's instructions for people like me who don't know how to use these types of notebooks. See, I'm not a big ink guy, but... Here you can put down information, like sure what it swatch looks like the color, out. and then you can put down the information of the pen, the nib, etc., etc. If you move later into the book, you have, hold on, I gotta sneeze. <coughs> okay. Bless you. Thank you. You have uh, a generic bottle of ink that you can write stuff into. Then you have a outline of a fountain pen that kind of allows you to write down what pen, what nib you have. If you look over at Tom's, if you're watching, he has his filled out. And then you got these. You got an angry octopus, a decently moody octopus, and a happy octopus for whether you like this ink that you're using or not. So the majority of the book is this right here, just different inks that you can log. And then towards the back, you have what you see oftentimes on the Ink Journal Instagram page during 30 Inks 30 Days where he draws out the squares on the dot grid. Well, these are pre-drawn out for you because knowing how to draw a square and outline the square is not really essential to 30 Inks 30 Days, but this does it for you. If you're kind of like a person like me who is just too lazy to draw squares because that's a thing, too lazy to draw squares. These are already done for you. It saves you the time of drawing the square or messing up the square or mismeasuring the number of dots to make the square. And then yes. you can do your ink swatch there. Do you have a sample you can show them of your, your uh, No, because I have not engaged in a 30 inks, 30 days challenge yet. But right. when when that comes up in September, that's what I'll be using for it. So Okay. Yeah. So this is one of the Odd Oink's favorite colors. It is like a cerulean blue, turquoise type blue. Hopefully it doesn't get keyed out in the green screen. But I don't think so. If you want to check out what this is used for, you can check out the Ink Journal Instagram page, and it's always littered with all kinds of ink stuff because it's Ink Journal. These notebooks are available exclusively at inkjournal.com for $27. Get yours today. Okay, so that's all I have for the sponsorships. We're really excited to talk with our good friend JJ Lax, who's a really smart guy, and I'm outnumbered by the number of beards. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> after the intro but before we get started with this week's episode i want to give you guys a quick disclaimer this podcast is not scripted and therefore will contain potty mouth words both from tom and i mostly from me maybe from jj who knows we'll see it's an exciting event we haven't had this much fun in a long time i'm looking forward to it so just be forewarned you have been warned now on to the podcast the pet boy roy entertainment podcast stage savage so Today we have JJ Lax. We're excited to have you here. Just do me a favor, JJ. Pay attention to your framing and try to center yourself. Just scooch over to your right. All right. So today we have. Yeah, stop. That's <laughs> like it. That? Too much. Perfect. Too much. All right. Perfect. You're good. All right. All right. So, like I said, we have JJ Lax while Tom is getting hammered and I'm drinking coffee. So, Tom is drinking what looks like a dark beer. He claims that it's not, but I'm not going to. It is to... not. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Sure. Coffee. Got it. It's anyway, coffee. Yeah, JJ Lax is here. We've had JJ Lax on before, 
And we've always had a lot of fun with him. So when he reached out to me and said he had stuff to talk about, I didn't even ask him, hey, man, what do you have to talk about? Because I truly don't give a shit. I just want him on the show because he's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, JJ, how have you been? It's been a while. Yeah, I'm great. I, I have one question, though, before we get into it, which is uh, if I hit, reach five times, do I get the Penboy Entertain, Entertainment Podcast code like they give the five-timers on Saturday Night Live? I didn't Maybe know have... that. I didn't know that. <laughs> I don't watch Saturday Night Live. I, I thought oh. I, I didn't know that they're still doing shows. They are, Well, they. I mean, I, I, up until this season, they were doing it. I guess now everyone's on strike, whether you're a performer, writer, or whoever you are. Mm. The directors, the directors caved. We don't need to get into the the, the uh, labor dispute of Hollywood, but you know, I can I can send you something. It might not be a jacket. I could I could send you. A, well, we depleted a, our entire supply of shirts, right? So that's you know, that's kind them. of out of the I way. I got them. I got oh, yeah? a bunch. Yeah, yeah. I think of something the extra. Long show where we were all oh, together. The, oh yeah, I left noticed. them out on the table. I took three. One I for me and two for the boys. I, I can't believe that you're not wearing them for the show. You'd be the only one, actually. I thought that would be tacky to have it on. Like, <laughs> Is I there anything something else? Like it's like going to like you know, right? You know, like it'd be like it'd be like two 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 d bag type behavior. No, to wear your t shirt to your show. I I needed to do something different. I think. Am I wrong? Mm. Is that I'd love to no, know you... in the comments below what people I... think. I love the engagement. I do. Th I do think you're wrong. I think everybody else will agree. Okay. And even if they don't agree, what they really mean is that they agree. That's how I'll interpret everything that oh, people okay. say. If it's in disagreement, I'm just kidding. But yeah. Anyway, good to see you again, brother. What do yeah, you got? What do you got? Here. What do you got for us today? Well, I'd like to start with a with an exercise, if you will. Okay. I'd like you to imagine a world where everybody uses fountain pens for all writing that's not done on a keyboard or a typewriter or something like that, right? Can you picture a world like that, right? Okay. 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 Oh, right? What a wonderful now, world. But what if I told you you could you could still get into that world in some way? You could still have a piece of that world without actually going back in time in some interesting Michael J. Fox type format, right? Okay. Why do I say this? Why, yeah, why would I say this, right? And I'll say that one of your recent podcasts that I was listening to as I was working on pens inspired me to, to think a little bit more about this. So that's why I wanted to come here and talk about it. But uh, what I want to talk about is vintage pens. And, okay. you know, I'm going to use the term vintage loosely, anything that's old, right? So, like, for example, again, going back to that podcast, Roy, you talked about getting that, like, Schaefer balance, too, I think it was, at the mm -hmm. most recent on the show right that to me is somewhat of a vintage pen like granted it could have been made there oh, it wow. is it could have been made in the 90s but you know it it it's still going back to an earlier age that's over right because like schaefer parker waterman kind of the names we all know like the form that they exist in today does not it was not when that pen was made like that schaefer balance too is like what do you three, mean when you say yeah. the form that they exist in today, can you clarify what that means? Sure. So, like, for example, Schaefer, right? Schaefer maintained its U.S. factory until, like, a little more than 20 years ago, right? Okay. That closed. 
And then Schaefer, the brand, has gone through several iterations, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different, right? And so, like, they were owned by Cross for a bit of time. Private Equity, I think, had them. Now they're owned by a company called William Penn in India, and they are now coming back to the U.S. after a few years of not being in the U.S. market. It's just a different company, right? Like I have an Onodo that I got, right? There's a Onodo that you could get today made in England, but there's an Onodo that existed in, a, in another time and place. Um, that is the modern pens kind of reference, but it's just not the same thing. So like, so when I say vintage, I'm talking about kind of like the end, anything that was made kind of to the end of the heyday of fountain pens. So like whatever existed from that heyday is sort of like different now before that change took place that's what, what okay we'll so about you're, you're saying anything that existed to the heyday of fountain pens so let's from, establish from. from okay yeah so let's establish the end of the heyday sure in your in your perspective so that we have more of a structured idea of what you consider vintage yeah right okay so one of the great things and we'll get more into this about why this 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 matters in a little bit but, right, so fountain pens as we know it, meaning the object that can hold its own ink supply, right? Because there's dip pens, which a lot of folks love for calligraphy, things like that. You know, there's a beautiful antique versions. Some of those companies that made them became fountain pen manufacturers, like maybe Todd, I think, is one of them. But really what a fountain pen is, right, is it's, it's that style of pen, but it holds its own ink supply. And I think that the convention is that around 1880, sort of that started, Lewis Waterman filed the first patent. There's some historical debate about that by the people who are super into this, which we'll leave it to them to explain. Um, but that's basically, so like, that's a start of fountain pens, right? And then if you think about, so that started in like the industrial revolution and fountain pens then went through all the aesthetic and industrial eras that existed up until basically the 80s and 90s, right? And starting probably in the 90s, and again, people who are experts on this, and I will tell you I'm not, I don't consider myself a vintage pen expert, I just am an enthusiast, and that's why I wanna talk about it, talk about it like that today. Um, the people who, you know, the, the sort of the, the companies and the makers that like existed from that heritage that started in the 1880s, and kind of ran through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Like those brands, a lot of them, I think really the big shift is like late 80s into 90s, right? Like at some point, like Parker and Waterman and Rotring, which is a German brand, were all purchased by like Sanford and like they became different companies. They just have it, you know, and some of the pens they make look similar, but it's just a different company, you know? And so that's where, I, so that, so that period, I guess I'm talking about is theoretically 1880 all the way to say 1997 or something like that, 1999. Right? Okay. So for the sake of this conversation to you, vintage is anything before the 1990s? Yeah. Let's, let's say that. Cause there's a pen called the Parker 75, right? Right. That is like considered by some like the last great vintage pen, right? Again, these are subjective terms, meaning people make their own conclusion and judgment about it. And then we'll say, it, right. Is that the last vintage pen? I can't tell you that. I don't know if anyone can, but that's a, something that, you know, you hear sometimes the last great vintage pen. Um, and you know, that was, 
you know, basically an 80s pen, the aesthetics, everything, 70s, 80s pens, you know, like thin, metallic body, sort of like narrow nib, not really like that classic kind of flare out with the shoulders that we, we tend to think about um, as, as a nib. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, so that's sort of like the time frame. And why am I putting the time frame? Why is the Josh Lax view of the world taking this shape, right? I will tell you. The reason is, is because I want, uh, there's a lot of great people in the fountain com pen community that were not there when I started being uh, what I would say, I guess, collecting what you might just call it addicted, acquiring, enthusiast, whatever, fanatic, you know, um, there, what I, my, what I remember going to a pet fountain pen show was you walk around and there'd be a lot of white men, mostly white men kind of wanted to tell you what's special about whatever they had on their table. And they didn't care what you know or didn't know. They just wanted to talk to you about it. Right. As, as a younger person, that was my experience. We pivoted away from that in a great way. It's so much more diverse. The age, you know, the, the, the age range, the cultural backgrounds, the race, everything is so gender. It's so much more diverse, right? And a lot of people have found their way into it a lot through great modern pens and people who are being creative in different ways. And there's a lot of great companies that are like crushing it. You know, like right now you can find at any price point, like an amazing pen. Right. Like a very reliable pen from all over the world. Um, but what's another special thing that's out there, if you're really into pens and you want to experience something kind of new, perhaps, or different than, you know, what a lot of modern pens offer is this world of vintage. But I want to I'm a big tent person when it comes to this, obviously. So I'm giving it the broadest possible reading because you could go let's say right like it's using the schaefer balance too which is again the pen that roy uh got in long island right that is based on it, there's a reason it's the schaefer balance too there was an earlier schaefer balance which was a pen in the 20s through the 40s that was made out of celluloid it was the same shape some of them were bigger some of them were smaller some of them were black some of them were patterned um they all had gold nibs the gold nibs are like uh, you know, you can very hard to find flexible ones and we can get to flex at some point in our conversation because it's sort of inevitable, but like that, that, so, so if you find yourself going, so I try, you know, you find yourself, Oh, here's the Schaefer balance too. Super cool. You know, what is the Schaefer balance one about? And then you go and then you explore that a little bit. You're going to find something that's super well-made, super cool celluloid which is uh, has a huge premium now but for vintage stock you can find celluloid pens at a very reasonable amount um with a, a nib that is probably gonna stand the test of time because it is a thick piece of gold with a good uh solid tipping um and it's the whole pen is super reliable right and so that's why i want you know the broad the broadest way so just you start with basically the idea of you're going to buy someone else's pen or some group of people's pens. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, what is that experience going to, going to bring you? Um, and so that's why I came on the show today also to rack up my stats. So I get whatever the free, <laughs> the fifth timer sticker or, or what have you. So, okay. So you wanted to, you wanted to talk about vintage pens and yeah. basically just to, to tell me if I'm missing anything to summarize in a way. Yeah. We kind of just established what is vintage to you. Yeah. 
right? And you kind of touched on how vintage pens, or rather pens that are vintage but less vintage, can be a gateway into more vintage pens. So yeah. you use the Schaefer Balance 2 as an example. You said, oh, somebody might be intrigued by the Schaefer Balance 2, and then therefore go into the Schaefer Balance 1, right? Yeah. Okay. So what brought on this urge to talk about this? Not that you need a reason. No, uh, so no, there is, there is, uh, there's a couple of different reasons. So first of all, it's, uh, again, going back to my early time in this interest, right? And, and who are the people that were around, right? They were tend to be older, right? Uh, and there's a lot of really friendly, really knowledgeable people that are now going into their later years. And the, as, I mean, this will sound like, you know, the, there is an agenda, which is basically to say that we're in danger in a way of losing some of that as a community because people are not just, just not as interested in it anymore. And so obviously the emphasis, and I mean, you kind of need it, right? The economics of the pen business need demand, constant demand on these companies, right? And so that's good. Um, but one of the consequences that comes out of that is that if the focus is all a lot on acquiring or purchasing vintage pen or non-vintage pens, sort of recent manufacturer pens, right? Sort of the interest wanes, but there's like a lot of people that have spent a lot of time, decades, like really into it. And so one thing is for them to kind of just like find ways to preserve what they're, what they were really about when it came to fountain pens. Second is, and it's at a great time to jump into vintage fountain pens for that reason as well. There are, so, you know, you think about like, okay, I'm going to buy a vintage pen, right? You could think of like the immaculate Waterman 58 red ripple, right? So the 58 is like the large model. Those don't know, right? So Waterman, uh, big company, continues to exist today. I actually would submit that their modern stuff is just as good, although different, but I really like it. Um, but the 50, so they had different sizes, right? And the 58 was the biggest. And it's sought after because of the size and it's a little rarer, right? But you could think about like, okay, I'm going to go out and buy a Waterman 58. And you could go shopping for it in some fashion. And you could be looking for like a perfect metal clip and the cap band, you know, the metal part on the base of the cap, that that's in great shape, right? And that the ebonite is not discolored or anything like that. So, you know, you could go trying to find things like that. But the reality is that's going to be what is almost inaccessible for a lot of people because that's like a museum piece, what I'm describing. But there may be things like it or the same model in much less optimal condition for say like the like the, like someone who's just collecting that is a joy to use in fact if you all know steve light who does uh actually does children's books with fountain pens um he's here in, in new york city great guy if you ever encounter him but like he uses waterman 58s and he has like a bunch of user waterman 58s that he saw how, over the years how old is the waterman 58 uh you know again so here's where my expertise wane i believe I mean, just rough just roughly I would say like it's like a twenties model, right? So we're talking now like a hundred years old, but they still. Oh, wow. I, I hear I hear typing, so I think someone's yeah. That's, that's, that's me funny. On this. <laughs> yeah. No, we just look up stuff. Nobody. Oh, that's I good. Look up, good. I look up good. stuff here. 
because I'm just spitballing. So uh, right. someone needs to back me on the facts. Um, but so, you know, so so and why am I saying this in this context, talking about, say, a lesser a lesser condition or something like that? Well, the thing is, the people who have spent years acquiring and collating piles of pens, because there was a time where people could go to a garage sale and buy a garbage bag of pens for 20 bucks and it would have these things in it. Right. Um, those people now are at the point in their life where having all of this makes little sense for various reasons. They're not going to gift, you know, a whole pile of pens to their loved ones. They're going to give them the best stuff, right? So people are going to start to let this stuff go, and it's going to be let go at a pretty reasonable price relative to other things. So there's like a, a, a financial opportunity that can't go overlooked. So I'll give you an example of that in real life. So I went to the St. Louis Pen Show uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was um, – it's a very well-run show, but it just doesn't get the foot traffic that some of the other shows around the country get. And so there's people there looking to unload things. And so, like, for example, I got a vintage Mont Blanc with a flexible double broad oblique nib um, that has an ebonite, like the old-school ebonite feed. It might be a little bit of a Frankenhead. But the clip – whoever had this originally, the clip broke, and they replaced it with an Osmia clip, which was another big – vintage german brand that makes great pens so it's a good clip but it's just not the full mont blanc right i got this thing for 50 bucks you know mm. if it wasn't you know complete and it, it's writing i just filled it and and flushed it out like it you know and so that you know you can so you can get things like that and so you can begin to sort of get a feel for what it is um you know and so so i'm part of a larger group of folks that are trying to kind of preach the, the um, what's the best way to put it? Not like preach, but like spread the word about why you should give vintage pens a chance if for some reason you shied away from them. For some okay, reason. so you're, it sounds to me like you're not really saying give vintage pens a chance. You're saying give vintage pens that aren't in A-plus shape a chance. I mean, that's a decision. Everyone. I mean, some people will want the A plus shape, right? And right. that's great. Go for it. But I'm saying that if you're if, if the idea that things are not in A plus shape, perhaps has been something that's put you off or made you reticent to get involved or to take the plunge on something that maybe seems like, oh, well, like this the deal is too good to be true or there's just something about it that makes you feel uncomfortable or you don't want to do it. I'm trying to get people to go over the hump and just say, yeah, you know what? I'll give it a shot because, you know, the the upshot of this is if it, if, if I like it, it, might be really cool, you know. And and the other thing I'll say, and this is going to be sound like kind of like, uh, I don't even know, you, you, you'll think of a good word for it. You know, like there's a certain aspect to it where like you get to have like a writing experience that doesn't exi exist anymore. Um, and, you know, you kind of like find out what a fountain pen felt like to write with. 60 years ago to me is kind of like a cool experience and there's not much in our world like you know like how many of us can go like hop in a vintage car and go for a ride and like you know like a tin mm. lizard, right but you can do that with a pen you know i see i see your point there because and i can totally relate to that because there were times where you know we write with yovo nibs we write with you know, Bach nibs, we, and everybody uses Yovo and Bach, and then every once in a while you get something unique like a Lamy or, you know, an in-house made nib. And I think what you're saying, and I agree with it if this is what you're saying, the number of flavors are limited in modern times, and 
there's a different flavor that has been there and we have access to it. It just, you got to be open-minded to give it a shot. Yeah. I, I think that before I, you know, talk about this, I want to tell you where I stand when it comes Go to vintage pens. I can live with them and I can live without them. Right. Okay. So if I see one I like, I'll buy it. What makes the standard of something I like depends on the situation, right? So, for example, if I'm buying a Schaefer Balance 2, which you considered vintage in the beginning of the show, and it's in A-plus shape, I'll buy it. If it's not, I won't. And the reason why is I feel is because if I buy a vintage pen that's not in A-plus shape and I need to get some corrections done on it, the process of getting corrections done on it or getting repairs done on it is not as streamlined with counterparts that are modern, right? So like, you know, I buy a modern, you know, Monteverde pen, something's wrong with it. All it is is mail it in and I get another one back. I'm no way comparing the modern Monteverde with vintage. I'm just using that as an example. But I see your point, but also... I think when you're saying, hey, everybody, give vintage pens a shot is one thing. I agree with that. I don't think people should exclude vintage pens. But at the same time, I think you're, you're on a, you're on a tightrope when you're telling people, hey, give the ones that aren't in the best shape a shot because yeah. you're telling them now to invest their money in something where they may have no recourse if something goes wrong. Right. And then, sure, you could offer me all these options like go to this guy, go to this guy, go to this guy, go to this guy. You know, this guy's good at repair. You yourself, Josh, are very good at repair. What's the turnaround? Right. Yeah. Why would somebody opt for that if modern fountain pens don't give them that turnaround time or the potential risk of spending money from a vendor who is not completely and totally Good, Tom. Go ahead. You have your yeah, hand. Tom, Sorry. I just, we, we should come back to this though, because there's an there's there's some yeah. things to say about that. Well, I just a, I raise a good a good concern, and this is why we're having a conversation to talk I about did, concerns. I did go want ahead, to so. I did want to put uh, maybe like a, a an economic perspective on it. Yeah. So the so what you're saying before JJ is that you had gotten a really great deal, fifty dollars for a Mont Blanc with a flexible nib, nib, ebonite feed, and sure, clip had to be replaced and it probably wasn't in the greatest of shape, but it was $50. You spend $50 these days on anything and you're just getting an ordinary run-of-the-mill Yovo nib. You're getting, you know, injection molded plastic maybe and so on and so forth. So my, my kind of like my counter to Roy's argument about the fact that there's real, there's no recourse because these pens were made very long ago. They're not in warranty. There's not an easy place where you could just go and send it and get it replaced or, or fixed because all this stuff is, I mean, there are, there are ways to get it fixed. If you have a filling system issue or whatever, it's not just simple as just buying a different converter or cartridge to put in it. But at the same time, you only spent $50 on it if you did need to put some money into, let's say, fixing a bladder or a lever fill or a, a vacuum, uh, you know, the, the diaphragm on something or, or fixing a nib. You've only, you, you're, that's what JJ, JJ's point, I think, is, is that, is that, you know, kind of 
getting into vintage, if you could get a great value on it, then you might be able to just do a little bit of adjustment here or there and then have it be an amazing pen that then is worth, let's say, five times the amount that you put into it. Possibly. I agree with that. And more than just it's worth five times more, it's something that you enjoy and you like, right? right. So it's I, I definitely see that point 100%. Like, for example, you buy a vintage pen, you spend pennies on it, and then you turn it into something where it's fulfilling its goal as a being an awesome pen. I agree with that 100%. That's a very valid point. My thing is just that in order to get to that point, how many times do you have to fail before you get there? And a lot of times people sell vintage stuff online. It's happened to me. And you spend 50 bucks. And then it turns out that that 50 bucks wasn't worth the 50 bucks because the pen you got was a dud. And then you try to get it fixed. You spend a few more dollars on it. And even though you got it fixed, it still is not where it should be. And then the experience becomes soured. And then what happens to some people, like what happened to me is, like I said, I'm not for or against vintage. I am against the experience of wasting money. But then you become more cautious and guarded about spending money on those things, right? So like there's no standard of being able to buy something. Like right now, you buy a pen at gold spot. There is certainly a standard that I can rely on in terms of of customer service and warranty, even if the brand goes out of business, right? So I buy a pen two years later to go out of business and I have a problem with it, I reach out to Goldspot, they'll be like, all right, so we can't get it fixed, but maybe we, they'll work with you. Vintage, there's nothing else, there's nothing like that, unless you buy it from like Fountain Pen Hospital or something like that. So what, what I would say is a couple of things. So first of all, I, the, I get that what you're talking about is a, is a certain buying experience that's very, has a lot of convenience, right? And I also recognize that what I'm talking about requires that someone who starts to look at these things, depending on what it is, because it's not always the case, you know, start to learn a little bit about what they're, they're going after. And in some ways, you kind of need to do that because there's just so much out there that you might want to know a little bit about, like, what are the key things? And there's some good ways to do that, which we could, could get to in a second. Second, it, there are these things, if they're kicking around now, a lot of them are very well made. And yeah, they may have little problems. We'll get to some of the problems too in a, in a second. But the thing is that a lot of them last pretty well. And so it may be a little beat up, but like it is kind of what Tom's saying, you are getting some of that value, even if you're paying a low price. Now, if you, so, so what is there to kind of understand about the lay of the land that affects like the purchasing process that Roy, you very eloquently laid out, right? So the first thing is, right, to understand- I said something eloquent? You did, it was very eloquent. <laughs> I, I was moved, I don't know about you, Tom. But, um, I see tears kind of coming through on Tom's thing, but I don't know if that's wanting- That's just, being I, was, I, was cutting, I was cutting onions. That was that was uh, sweat from drinking too much yeah. beer. Yeah, <laughs> beer, sweat. beer sweat. Um, uh, yeah, what like whatever time it is on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so, uh, so right. So, what is it that you kind of got to know if you're going to go check this stuff out? So, the thing obviously is different brands had different filling systems, right? The 
idea of a cartridge did not come into real use in any real way until like the latter period of what I was talking about before, like 60s and 70s. Okay. Now, that being said, again, if you're interested in kind of seeing some of the stuff, you can find things that don't have the complexity that the earlier stuff does. And I would, and that's again, a relative term that we talk about that, but so basically like, and, so like, and you're talking, you're talking, you're talking about filling mechanisms. You're so what yeah. you're saying is if you're looking for something that's more, that's vintage, but is less complex than having like a sack or something or has yeah. cartridges, yeah. you can find that. Now, Mike, yeah. just really quick, I'm sorry, but you're, you're in a way implying that issues with vintage pens exist more with filling mechanisms versus those with cartridges because right so you're saying that there's less issues because otherwise what's the point of separating them in this well the point of separating is that you know you were highlighting like the issue of i go i plunk down money on this thing that looks super cool and mm. then from there things got to happen to it in addition to the buying process like, i can't just ink it up and start writing and letting people try it and right right you know like there's some upkeep, right? And so the first thing I wanted to address was that, like, there are vintage pens that are basically, you know, vintage, come from the 60s, 70s, really well made, but basically have, like, a converter that mm. goes in it. Or you can get cartridges that still fit. Like, this is a Schaefer. This is mm -hmm. what they call the squeeze converter. Um, these things last a very long time. You can still buy them because there's old stock kicking around. Uh, but it's as easy as, like, any other pen, right? And for this one, again, this was not an expensive purchase for me, but like, it's like uh beautiful nib. 14 K yeah. super broad. I love broads, um, right. you know, both pens and otherwise, um, I'm sorry, and, just uh, really yeah. quick. So Thank when you. I was talking about that buying experience, right. And yeah. things going wrong, I didn't actually mention filling system. So I'm not making a distinction between the two, because I've bought vintage pens that don't have a filling system, uses cartridges that mm -hmm. turn sour, sour for me. And again, I'm not against vintage pens, but I don't think that the issues I'm talking about is, about is exclusive to pens with filling mechanisms. I, I think that okay. pens without internal filling mechanisms also are included in that. For example, I had two experiences, one with uh, a Conklin Crescent filler, which had its own filling mechanism, that that one had issues and then i had a i forgot the name of the brand one from the 60s that was a problem and it was a cartridge converter and something to do with like the feed or the little pipe that goes into the into the cartridge or something like that okay was a problem and then recently a friend of mine he bought a vintage yeah i read the email a couple of weeks ago it's a cartridge converter and it it still had a problem so what I think do we that, mean by problem? Because let's define so, you so, know, what that is. So there was there's a his pen would burp or keep dripping, right? Okay. And then the one that I had, there was a fracture in the grip section where the okay. feed feeds into. So it it would it would leak, basically. So basically just little things like that. But my point is the the issue that I talk about when it comes to the buying experience isn't exclusive to those vintage okay. pens with filling mechanisms. I got what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is sort of the same thing though, which I kind of started with, which is that it is not, you know, recognize that it's not the same buying experience. Right. And mm -hmm. so you, you know, 
depending on what the pen is, right, and who you're buying it from and things like that, and what you're willing to take in as risk, right? Because mm-hmm. it's sort of like a risk-reward thing I think we're all kind of dancing around is that are you willing to take a risk on it, right? Is the price for what it is, if it works out, with relative ease good? Or is the price with whatever needs work needs to go into it, is it worth it to you, right? I So there is a difference, right, than buying a modern pen. Um, now, with all that said, you know, I don't know if, you know, like latent defects, I get what you're saying. It's much harder if there's a latent, you know what I mean by latent defect, mm-hmm. meaning something that's in, in a problem that you can't see, but nonetheless exists, that's going to affect things. If that is there, yes, it does become maybe more of a headache. Um, so what does that mean? Again, if you're interested in it, and I encourage everyone to at least check some of this stuff out and look online at pictures and, and read a little bit about it, is if you're interested in trying something, you got to learn a little bit about it. And then mm-hmm. you got to make sure you feel good about the person you're buying the pen from. Um, you know, it, it, so there's a whole, you know, it's the same kind of like stuff that you might have to do if you're, you're making a purchase that, you know, you're not sure about Just think about if you want it. I'm not, I, I don't want people to go out in the next six months go hog wild for vintage pens and then be completely distraught over the experience. Mm-hmm. My hope is to help people in some way find a little bit of dexterity with it so that, do I use too many big words, by the way? I, I, I'm becoming very no. self-conscious. All right, good. All right. So do you get to feel their way a little bit by starting small, right? Starting simple. Um, and there's some models that are more reliable for like, you know, in terms of you get them right out of the right out of the dealer's hand, they're more likely to work for you better than something else because it does have some more complications. But mm-hmm. um, again, I go back to yeah, like people have experiences with it. They are overall very durable. So you know, it, there's some fragility, right, with some things that are 80 to 100 years old. But uh, like you know, again, I could just start picking up pens that are in front of me and start talking about them, which I don't want to do because I don't want to get lost in the weeds. But there's a fair number of them that are pretty good, and you know that you know the and and you can you can make it work. Now on that last point, making it work, right? The other thing is that. For a relatively low cost, you can learn to do some of this yourself, right? So if it is something that interests you, like to change a, a, a sack, which literally means like in the um, body of the pen connected to the base of the section is a sack that's shellac there. It's like a glue type material. It's not that complicated to change that, right? And you can learn to do it if you want to, right? It's, it's a personal choice. I always looked at it, if you like vintage pens, it was like the equivalent of like learning to change a tire. If you drive a car, you should know how to change a tire. You should learn how to change a sack. Now, on the flip side, there's some great pens that take a little more know-how to do and some things that are kind of like at the upper echelons. And if you want that experience, like, yes, you got to accept that there's going to be some costs involved. So, for example, let's say you love, and I forget. Tom may have to give me the, the, the name of this model. The Narwhal with the plunger. Film, the original right? plus. Yeah, is that what it's called? The original plus, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, I call it the FU Philip Lim. Uh, <laughs> the, uh... You know what, though? I, can I just chime in on that? Can I yeah. just chime in on that? Here's the thing. I remember when Twisby was going after Narwhal because Twisby was alleging that Narwhal copied yeah. 
Twisby, and I remember that whole conversation we had, and I'm like, fuck yeah. that guy from Twisby. Fuck him. What a dickhead. He, yeah. Narwhal didn't copy Twisby. And then you showed me that pen, and that fucking pen by, Twi- by Narwhal looks like an exact copy of a Twisby. <laughs> and that happened after yeah i'm like what you know it's like i was here on the defensive end of narwhal because i'm like man man you didn't copy twisby and then they're yeah. like yeah we're gonna fight for you know our our stance and then like two months later they come out with a pen that looks exactly like a twisby <laughs> i mean i you know i i so the the part of me that I would push back on it, I don't know if it is exactly like a Twisby. It has its own design features, and they clearly. Oh sure, I know. You know and I'm being, but, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic, yeah. but no joke though. When you held that up, I really thought it was yeah. Twisby. Yeah, oh come no, on I now! I, I I saw that. I was right there. I know. I know. What, I know the differences. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so all right. So going back to the pen, the, the Fu Philip Lim, right? The, <laughs> right. Um, with that, right? Let's say you love that idea, and then maybe you like the, and you look at the Viscontis, and you say, "Oh, the Visconti makes something like that, but it's eight hundred, nine hundred dollars." Mm. And you know, although well, that's just not true because they they do have less expensive models, but whatever. And you say, "Okay, but what if I told you that like people have been making that plunger filler style filling system since like the '30s, and so you could get a Schaefer plunger." Or you can get a Nonoto, which I mentioned earlier, you know, like my pen, that, you know, Winston Churchill was using a version of that when he was fighting in South Africa, or a journalist in South Africa in 1901, right? Like, there's a lot of vintage precedents for some of these things, right? But what I would tell you is, yes, you can get that, but, like, if you buy a $30 Schaefer plunger filler, which you could do... Odds are is you're going to have to have somebody go in and fix it because there's just no way. I mean, unless it was recently restored, there's just no way that's going to be. But so and so from that, I would say, yeah, like that's a to me, it's a really cool pen. It's like a really interesting pen and the experience of it. And I can tell you, I've written with I have a vintage Onoto that I restored myself. It was not. It was not super easy, but it wasn't like overly complicated. The Schaefer is more complicated for reasons we can save for another conversation. Um, and, uh, but, you know, like it's really cool to be able to use, get something like that working. But you want it's, you know, right? Like I recognize that you want to do that. You know, my big uh, pitch to the pen world is that if you've over, if you've shied away from it for some concerns, just take another look in the sense that there's something out there that will appeal to you. And yeah, maybe ultimately it, for whatever reason, it's inaccessible. You don't like Mm -hmm. the cost. You're worried about the risk. You read online that like some part of it is prone to cracking or something like that. And yeah, like leave it behind, but it just is like, there's a, there is another world out there that I think that people are aware of, but like for various reasons don't really, you know, feel comfortable or, or have the inclination to like jump into um you know but you can get think, really cool stuff sometimes you know yeah like sure really i think pens. i really think that that's a valid thing thing to pitch to people because what you're also giving them is you're giving them another depth to the hobby right so like someone like me i got into fountain pens with modern fountain pens i didn't really get into vintage fountain pens yeah i'm still not i'm still not into vintage fountain pens like i said i could live with it i could live without it but 
I can see why getting into vintage is now a new dimension within the hobby of fountain pens, right? It's kind of like a, it's like a, how does like you're into cars. Yeah. Now you're into vintage cars, right? So it's kind of like the same thing. Like I'm into, I'm in, let's say you're into pop music, right? Like take a step back and listen to the Beatles and learn yeah. about the Beatles. And then you'll see and have a greater appreciation of modern music or modern rock, at least because most of modern rock is somehow affected by the Beatles. Right. So I definitely see that. I definitely can, however, see that getting into vintage for a lot of people is intimidating because yeah. like you said, you have to know about it. You have to do research on it. You have to learn about it and stuff like that. And I think that with any hobby though, you have to learn and research and do stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think yeah. the, the issue is with this new hobby within a hobby in fountain pen, vintage fountain pens is since there's a greater risk of spending money and not having that money return on your investment, I think people can be intimidated by that. Well, yeah, I would no, want to at least I know I would want to see about you. removing some of the roadblocks that then yeah. would prevent somebody from being more into this. And one of the things I could think of is being able to have resources because I know that there's folks like JJ who work on nibs particularly, um, who also have a good knowledge of vintage pens. Uh, I've I went in my journey in vintage. I had sent several pens to Aaron Svabic of Pentiques.com. And I've been happy with his service and the, he had, I had a few pages. I got through a phase of like, I was buying a whole bunch of things on eBay and sometimes because I, I, I weighed the risk and reward. It was a cheap auction. Pictures weren't that great, but it was a, a pen that I really wanted. And if it worked out, it was going to be a big windfall because if the pictures were good and the condition was excellent, I would have saved like hundred, two hundred dollars so if I spend $30 on that pen, sending it to somebody to repair the filling system or adjust a nib, not a big deal in the overall, you know, uh, case of things. So I, I think having the resources of being able to get yourself out of a situation, even if you did get into a bad pen that has a couple of issues with it, I think would help would go a long way in getting people more. Uh, amenable to getting into vintage pens and doing, you know, mm -hmm. doing the research into that. Yeah. yeah. I just also have to say that I think that there needs to be an understanding of what you're getting into. Like, for example, if you're going to buy a vintage pen, you have to be accepting of the fact that you may have to spend an extra $30, $50, maybe even $100 on getting it restored. But at the same time, if you are not financially capable, then would you, I wouldn't say that this is the best idea right now. I think the best idea would be just stick with a lower end, low cost, reliable pen like a Pilot Metropolitan. Enjoy that. Mm -hmm. There's no pressure for you to get into this vintage thing. But if you're able to, it's definitely giving a, you a new dimension and perspective into the hobby. I do appreciate that about vintage pens. And that's why I get stuff like the, the Schaefer Balance yeah. and... And, you know, to your point, Jay, JJ, there's nothing like the Schaefer balance that exists on the market today. 
right? And like, yeah, there's pens that look similar and stuff like that, but there's something, there's a je ne sais quoi about this pen, the nib, mm. the way it writes, right? That really doesn't, like a Yovo nib, as much as I love Yovo, cannot emulate it. Mm-hmm. And going to, and to your point again, Jay, it's a $200 vintage pen. I'm willing to buy it because the the risk, the reward of how it writes, and this one I got from a guy named Dan at the Long Island Pen Show, is worth the risk. Because let's say it didn't write or anything like that, or the nib was messed up. Then I'd have to mail this out to JJ and have him fix it and then have him send it back, right? And pay pay whatever his fee is. But like you said, Tom, at the end, I'll be happy with the product that I got, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I wanted to buy a modern pen that had the same pedigree, I'd be spending, what, 350 maybe $400. But oh, easily. In I only, easily. Yeah, in this case, I only spent 200 I got lucky. It was a – this one knocks it out of the ballpark. It writes perfectly. So the risk was definitely worth the reward. But you, it is a gamble. And if you're getting into it, you have to just be aware that there is loss potential. Yeah, I mean, let me let, let me just say, and I'm glad Tom raised this, which is the resources, right? So, you know, there's things that exist out there that are very good. So, first of all, Richard Binder has richardspens.com. He has, like, he created his own diagrams of things and, like, explains, mm-hmm. like, the basics of stuff. And if you want to read about how you go about fixing some of the stuff yourself just because you want to know, like, it's there. Um Second is there's some good books. In particular, there's a book that called, uh, I think it's called Pen Repair 4th Edition, which is the, they're on the 4th edition. It takes pictures of all this stuff and like lays it out and ex- gives you explanations. But I think that even that stuff can be a little inaccessible because it's sort of like deep down the rabbit hole, like, you know, super wonky things. And so what I'm fixing to do, uh, we're doing two things. So first of all, I got a group of people together. We're going to do a panel in DC, talk about how to actually make that leap without making yourself crazy. Right. So just like where to start at a very basic level in a very broad way. Right. Next, what, I'm fixing to do is, and I've started kind of making, experimenting with my, making my own stuff and throwing up on Instagram, but I'm going to actually do some sort of YouTube channel where I'm going to work with various people. Uh, and it won't always be me. We'll have pair people up, which is a dream I've had for years to do this and have sort of old generation, new generation come together and just like give people a quick down and dirty look at some of these things. So you get a little quick understanding, five minutes, throw on the video between Penboy Roy episodes and, you know, you learn maybe something you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. And next time you go to a show or you're somewhere shopping, antique store or whatever, and you see something you're like, oh, I know what that is. And you take a look at it and maybe it interests you. Mm-hmm. Things like that, right? Because, again, like uh, – I recognize like you could go hog wild, buy a fishing vest and, you know, become like an old timer at one of these shows, like really into it really quickly. But that's really not who I'm trying to talk to. What I want to talk to the people that like love Leonardo pens, which are great pens, super cool pens. But did you know that if you look at, you know, Italian pens from the 30s, 40s, 50s, you're going to see where Leonardo's DNA comes from Mm. and if you can go get your hands on one even if you don't buy it because some of them can be kind of expensive just kind of see like what like 
you know, a pen company in Florence was making in the fifties. Mm, that's 30s, a very, you know? that's a very, a very good point. And I like the direction that that's going because it's it, like I was using before when it comes to like music and, you know, modern rock, like look at the roots. And I think that's a, a great, I think that's a great thing that you're trying to do and put out there. I do think that you have very strong arguments for this. Not that there's an argument. I mean, like yeah. I said, I'm not for or against it. But I do have a question that I want to ask yeah. you. All right. And we're going to get to that right after this short key break. I think a lot. Well, I wish I knew what that. I wish I knew what that question was, Roy. Maybe I could ask him yeah, while you're gone. Jeez. He just doesn't think of these things. Poor host of his own podcast, I tell you. Yeah. Just terrible. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, I guess the old adage, when you got to go, you got to go. You pretty know, much, but... pretty much. But uh, this panel that you have at DC, who else is on the panel? So we have Paul Arano, who okay. um, publishes the Found Pen Journal. and it's The just Grand like Poobah. The Grand Poobah himself. He, mm-hmm. he, uh, so this is in part a little bit, uh, we're not sponsored because we're not taking money, but... This is in part put on by the Black Pen Society, which is essentially him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fellow named Mike Daigle, which some people might know from eBay and Instagram as Mad Mercantile. Uh, okay. He's a super cool guy. Um, he sells both vintage and modern. And then we have Travis Young, who's more my age. Um, and he's going to be talking about sort of the same stuff, but also, and he does found pen repair. Um, cool. And so, you know, we're trying to avoid the kind of getting into the granularity of like, oh, like finding every clip design that Schaefer had for the balance, you know, like we're talking more about like just purely trying to encourage people to experience these things. What I would say before we get to Penboy Roy's uh, question is, you know, like if you like the crown, right, the crown on Netflix is a great show for fountain pens. Uh, and if you like looking at Queen Elizabeth, writing notes to people and the way her notes look in the pens, that's because she is using vintage pens with the vintage nibs. And you know, the ink is probably made down the road in, in Manchester, do you mean but like, like, if you want to kind of capture that, Go try some vintage pens. And I could tell you if you like, you know, broader, like I don't really like fine or extra fine nibs. So for mm-hmm. me, I end up gravitating toward British pens because they tend to have broader nibs. Mm-hmm. There's something that's okay. out there, right? But you can get some, like, there's a Parker Duofold model that's made out of plastic. It's a 14K nib. They come in different sizes from a little, like, vest or purse size all the way up to, like, a senior. The They have, like, kind of like the, the aerometric filler. The what it's made out of is super durable. They generally work well. Um, and you could start writing with this thing right away. And it's a pen from the fifties. And I, I mean, I, I have a bunch of them cause I love it, but nice. so there's models like that out there. Right. And you know, helping people find those things is part of like what, what I'd like to help them do, mm. you know? So anyway, ask your question, I, sir. Yeah. I like, I like the, I like the, I like the desire that you have. Like I, I see what you're trying to do and I like it. I think that at some point, if somebody's mind was closed off to the whole vintage pen thing, I think that opening your mind to it or just being open to the idea of it is a very, is a very good start. Conversely, realize that there will be risk involved. And for me, 
half the times the risk wasn't worth it and half the times it was. But for the times that it was, it's like a real, like, yeah. it's a score. It's really cool. It's a good feeling. And I do, I do appreciate that. My question is, you talk about the need for people not to let the ways of the old and the vintage pens die, right? You mentioned that earlier, like these things, yeah. these guys are going away because they're getting older and everything like that. And we don't want them to be forgotten. I'm with you on that. But what is your opinion about the need for vintage pens for the future of just the fountain pen industry as a whole? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So, you know, what I'm talking about is like a body of knowledge about these things, right? Like, for example, you know, everyone always asks, and I deal with nibs, so I, I part of this conversation regularly, why can't anyone make vintage flex style nibs, right? Well, it can be done, right? Because what that was, was a matter of the alloy, the tempering, and the shaping, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that whoever knew what that alloy was didn't tell anyone outside a pen company. Mm. And so maybe in the archives of watermen that are now in France or wherever they are, if they even exist anymore, because they could have been just shredded, um, that information may exist somewhere in somebody's file or it may not, and it went into the sands of time, right? And so... There's things like that for the industry that would be great to know because, you know, watermen themselves, maybe they have this secret and it's a juicy secret, right? And you say, well, why wouldn't they tell anyone? Well, who knows why? We, we can't get into their mind. But maybe there's another company that if they had that, they would make the investment in mixing the alloys, doing the shaping and things like that. Um, if that knowledge was was readily available, right? Because now, right, what we're talking about is, well, now someone has to sort of start from scratch. They have to get gold, which is expensive. They have to start to play with different alloys, and I'm sure those people can do it. And then they have to make the tooling and the dyes and the cutting and all this stuff. And at the end of it, right, it's a tremendous investment, um, which may be cut, have been cut short if that information was something like readily available. Right. right. So, I, so I completely agree with the example that you just gave yeah. because nowadays it's, it's modern deliberately vin- chosen. modern modern fountain pens cannot emulate the flexing wet noodle experience of 1910 with all the yeah. technology and we talk me and Tom talk about it all the time with all the technology that we have with with being able to look at something on your cell phone to fact check something someone just said to you 10 seconds ago with all this and being able to make all kinds of modern machines and advanced technology, we can't seem to emulate it. And I think you're, and I definitely think you're right. It's because the guy in 1910 who knew how to make it didn't tell the next guy. And then over time, we lost that formula, that recipe for an awesome flex nib. And in, in, with this example in particular, yes, 100%, this is why we need to know the methods of the guys before us, but outside of the flex nib, because yeah. the flex nib situation already happened, what do you think can be gained in the future of fountain pens through vintage pens now, other than the flex nib situation? I mean, so I guess, you know, going with the, it, it, well, there's a few things. One is the, 
there is a historical value, right? So there, there's like an intellectual part of me that says like, we need to do this. And that is really more of a value system than anything else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the problem that I think the fountain pen industry could face at some point is two or threefold, right? One is people just tire out because there is like a degree of sameness which is not necessarily a problem, but like I'm going through pens right now because I have too many pens. I need to like declutter a little bit. And, you know, I can remember why I bought things at the time, but like I'm also looking at it and I'm saying, well, when am I ever going to re-ink this thing up when I have this thing, you know? And, it, and I'm talking specifically within like different colorways of the same model or something like that, you know? And so... You know, so as the the market matures, so to speak, is there a point where people tire out and to keep the fountain pen community and the fountain pen industry going, we need something else. And rather than having to reinvent the wheel on the whole body of pens that exist from before the 90s, wouldn't it be great if we were able to preserve to the extent, the, the biggest extent possible, all of this so we can keep our community thriving? forever because people can just kind of bounce back and forth right because some you know the idea right is like some days you want to pick up your Bennu because your Bennu is crazy and awesome and you can stare at it and things like that and some days you want to pick up you know your waterman 94 because it gives you just a little bit of bounce when you're taking notes and you know uh you know, and then when you're going to a meeting, you know, you want your Mont Blanc 149 because it, you think it's going to stand out. You know what, you know, like, like to be able to, to have that variety, to keep it like a healthy community, I think is somewhat necessary. Um, and I think that also like people's entry into it can be satisfied with these things too, right? Like a big part of things that did not exist when I started in fountain pens is like the dynamics of like Instagram and the visual nature of us taking these tools and like making it a visual experience as a part, as opposed to a, a um, solely like user or tactile experience mm-hmm. is like kind yeah. of like what they were conceived of. Right. In some ways, right. Like there's like a whole world of vintage pens. Like if you love like Jonathan Brooks or turn pen company or any of these people or narwhal, that are doing these wild materials, like go online and Google vintage Conway Stewart. And just, like, see what they did in celluloid, where, like, you'd have, like, green and red with, like, gold metallic veins, like, you know, and just think, you know, and, you know, I'm not saying to buy one necessarily, but, you know, take a look at it and just see, like, you know, what it was when someone wanted a super colorful pen back before we had, like, acrylics and uh, alumilite and stuff like that. What did you do? You know, what did you have, you know? Because, like, there's things that, you know, there's, like, these cross hitches and things like that. So, you know, so, there, so I don't know. I mean, that to me, that that's where the long run comes in, right? Like, it's, I, one, a yeah, historical I, thing, but, two, like, it it keeps our ecosystem going that you can right, right. this I, thing in so many different ways. I definitely think that's a very good point because right now, yes, the current modern market is saturated with so many products and because there's so many, there are so many similarities between them that a person can experience burnout, right? Yeah. But to escape that burnout, but stay within the hobby 
you have the vintage market that you can actually kind of go to get refreshed because, you know, as simple as this pen may be, it is a refreshing pen. Yeah. And another example of to, that, to your point, JJ, is the odd oink. Like, he wouldn't buy a modern Mont Blanc 146, but he would buy a vintage one for half the price, and he did, right? Yeah. So. I, I see what you're saying because like there's so many Mont Blancs out there. They're all the same, but there's uniqueness and value in the vintage. And he struck gold on that one too. Like, yeah. Well, I also think of the analogy of movies. So if, if you could imagine going to want to watch a movie, but you're only limited to watching movies made in the last decade. Yeah. And, and that's all that you had access to for the next, however many years that you watch movies. And you get tired of it because Hollywood at this point is, you know, it's m more of the same. It's just very, things are very similar. If they do reboots, everything kind of has a similar feel to it. But they told stories differently mm. back in, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. The stories were, but you would see very similar to how the development of fountain pens have gone. You could see roots of what is being produced now in what was being produced before. And some things just stand the test of time and that you could come back to watch it another 15 years from now and still feel that, you know, it still holds originality. It still has its like mm. unique, distinct flair that just cannot be uh, modernized or can't be replicated in a, in a current uh, piece of work. So it's like my, my yeah. example for it is my, my Parker Vacumatic. I love right. Vacumatics. There's nothing that comes close, I feel, to the Vacumatic experience. I mean, the, the material, the, the filling mechanism, the, the shape and size of it. Like, I, I bought a whole bunch of them. I, did, I just kept one. I have one right now. And that's like my sole vintage pen that I have in my really nice, like, 10-pen lineup. Uh, and... I will not give that up for pretty much anything because it is it is something that is a one of a kind and just just seems to just seems to stand a test of time because there's really nothing that has come right. at all recently that can replicate it. No. You know it's funny you bring up the movie thing and yeah. I'll give you an example of a movie like I've watched hundreds of movies with my wife. The most memorable I guess like movie watching with my wife that sticks out is the first one I think of sound of music. We've watched mm -hmm. the Avengers. We've watched all these movies that are modern and stuff, but I remember the most watching sound of music with her years ago, yeah. you know? So I definitely can relate to what you're talking about in terms of how vintage can be a refreshing experience when you're so saturated in modern tech and all that kind of stuff. And when I say modern tech, I'm not talking about iPhones and stuff. I'm talking about the modern tech of making modern, technical fountain pens that are machined yeah. and stuff like that. I do see how it can be refreshing. But at the same time, it does come with a moderate risk that I think you have to be real with people about and say, yeah, you are going to lose money at some point or you're going to have to spend more money at some point. But there's also going to be the time where you're going to strike gold. Yeah, I mean, yes. And look, you know, it's all it's all a matter of personal preference, right? And mm -hmm. personal choice and what your what your appetite is for this stuff, right? Like 
I'll tell you, like I have this. This is a maybe Todd. It's called a cell filler. It's a leverless, so it has. You gotta, a, you gotta hold it in front. Sorry, you gotta. You see it there? That's good, yeah, right there. Yeah. With, yeah, my camera. All right, look at that. All right, this was my first striking gold. Right, I saw this on eBay. It's chase, which means that like it's ebonite, and they use like a hot dye and like press into it to give it texture. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about like matte finish and stuff like that. And it had this like oblique stub that i didn't even really understand when i got it because i was so new to things and i started i inked it up <laughs> arrived and didn't need a new sack i don't think i've ever changed the sack in it um and it started writing it was like, super wet and awesome and it just was like a totally different thing and i and i started getting pens in like 2008 2009 2010 like there was a lot of stuff on the market because the economy had tanked and people were unloading stuff so I tried a bunch of stuff and just like nothing was like this. So mm-hmm. when you hit on that one experience, it's like the sound of music or, you know, mm-hmm. something you, you know, remember, you know, for a long time. And yeah, you're going to have some misses, but like I would submit to everybody that if you looked at your collection of modern pens, you would feel the same way about something at some point. You know, there's just like mm-hmm. something that just mm-hmm. seemed like it would sure. work, but just misses the mark in some way. Visconti. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, listen. Yeah. This this has been a very interesting. I appreciate you sharing your perspective because it's a perspective that that I'm certainly willing to be open to. I think right, that I, I I think I started the I, I dabbled in vintage. I don't have plans, or I didn't have plans to dabble more into vintage but it's something i'm certainly open to because of this conversation that we had and reservations aside i do want to experience that striking gold like i did with my schaefer balance and it is something that i am open to and i hope that everybody listening can also be open to and i'm by being open i'm not saying go out and just start dropping money on ebay i'm saying you know what the next time you go to a show instead of just walking past the vintage table take a look at the vintage table learn about it read about it there's nothing better than learning and reading and researching something that you have interest in especially if it's about a hobby that you're already engaged in right so there's there's no risk in learning about it so i i i'm with you on this one I'm with you on this one, JJ. I do appreciate right. your your perspective and sharing it with us, and I'm sure everybody else is. I'd like to know what everybody else thinks. Write in, entertainmentpodcast at gmail.com. That's all we have for you today. Thank you for joining us for episode number 172. JJ, thanks for being on. Very thanks, interesting JJ. discussion. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So that's all we have for you. Love you guys. Be well. Be safe. All right. Stay inky. Later.